0: All right, good evening. We are still in the book of Acts, chapter 19, verse 21 to 41. We'll deal with these 20 verses tonight, and I've entitled the lesson tonight, Signs of Total Takeover. I'm glad you survived this morning. I survived this morning for an hour, and then I had lunch at the the Moorhead's, ate myself into a pulp again. It's good to uh, have you here, Caleb, Jason, Caleb, always good to see you guys, and um, yo, we got special guests here tonight, that's Colton and Joe, Colton and Joe, and, and, and Colton is the, the, the pastor at the church down the road, River, River of Life, right, River of Life, yes, and Joe teaches their the men's Bible study, and let me tell you, I think they are here tonight because they love God's word, and you are here tonight because you do too, so I want to honor you for being here because it's cold, but Colton, cold. No, I'm joking. You're warm, my brother. Thank you for being who you are. Um, I, I appreciate you for coming to, uh, to spend time in the Word, even though, you know, you could have been warm at home. So, um, going through the book of Acts, you know, every Sunday night, it's like, sort of I've got to take us a little bit back and then forward, and, and just so that we can be in touch. And, and we haven't dealt with this in two weeks' time, and I forget what I spoke about last week, never mind two weeks ago. So, I've got to sort of remind myself, and I just want to show you the maps just quickly so that you once again... Just in this, in, in, in that we are in the same place and we know where we find ourselves in the book of Acts. So that's the first, uh, second missionary journey that Paul travels. Um, he starts off over there. Uh, you can see there in Damascus, but really he starts over in Antioch. That's where it starts. He goes through, and something interesting happened here, and I've been hammering on this. In Asia, he goes through Asia, and God muzzles his mouth. He doesn't preach the gospel, which is weird. He's a gospel preacher, but sort of God closes his mouth. He wants to go into the north, into Bithynia. Uh, and, and God prevents him from going there. It's like, it must have been torture for him. I want to preach the gospel, but God keeps on stopping me. That's the first missionary journey. And this is, oh, second, this is the third missionary journey. He's traveling again from Antioch. He goes through the areas on his first missionary journey, which is Galatia, the Iconium, Lystra, Derby. And then he moves into Asia. But this time he goes stra- smack bang through the middle and he ends up in Ephesus. That's where we find ourselves. Now, we've already seen a few things in Ephesus. Um, But Paul and the disciples there, we don't know who they all are. We know Priscilla and Aquila is there, but they're doing a powerful, powerful, powerful work. There's some other disciples there because when Paul arrives there now on the second missionary journey, he finds 12 guys, right, who's a little bit um, confused about uh, the baptism, the baptism of of John the Baptist. And so Paul teaches them properly over there. In any case, he goes into a synagogue, preaches in Ephesus for for three months in a synagogue and then decides, look, these guys don't want to hear anything. Uh, they're not interested. So he goes to the school of Tyrannus. And in the school of Tyrannus, he preaches, uh, actually doesn't preach. There's more uh, dialogue taking place. There's discussions taking place for two years, the text says. And the consequence of that is in verse 10 of chapter 19. All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard... The word of the Lord. That is absolutely incredible. So everybody in that province there, the province of Asia, hears the word of the Lord. That's incredible. Now we estimate this is about five years later. So on the, on the second missionary journey, God said, okay, it's not time to preach in Asia. That's why God kept His... The, the time is not ready yet. Five years later... On his third missionary journey, God says, Okay, now you can open your mouth. And everybody hears. And there's a lot of lessons we pulled out of that. Just how powerful it is that God knows where people's hearts are at. And at the right time, He unleashes you. But the, the, the real big question was, was this this is what we dealt with in the last lesson. The question was this like, How do you get it right to let everybody in Asia hear the word of God? How do you do that? You're like one apostle maybe 10, 12 converts, maybe Priscilla and Aquila. How does does 15 people get this right? And then the text that we dealt with last time specifically says that God performed extraordinary, the Greek says, special miracles. That there was power just in his handkerchiefs and napkins. When people touch a napkin of Paul, they get healed. Demons were driven out through napkins. Absolutely incredible, powerful stuff. So that's what we dealt with last time. Luke also tells us in the text of last time about a story that was incredible. People started noticing. Remember the Jews had these groups of people who were exorcists. They would go around and drive out demons. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees about this. There, there seems to be a, special, a speciality group of Jews even among the pharisaical sect that specialized in driving out demons. And they had all kinds of ways. Josephus tells us about all kinds of ways that they would drive out these demons. And we spoke about that last time. So they hear, oh my goodness, there's this guy, Paul. You just take his handkerchief to a demon and the demon is driven out. That's incredible. We need to go study this because we need to use his formula to drive out these demons. And so there were seven sons of Sceva, right? And they realized, oh, this is how they do it. They do it in the name of Jesus. So they're going to this demon's house, demon-possessed man, sorry, and then say, hey, in the, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, I command you, we command you, come out of him. And the demon answers what? Jesus, I know. Paul, I'm acquainted with, but who? Who are you? And the text says that after that, there's a great fear that travels through this whole place. Because they realized, oh my goodness, the name of Jesus is actually, actually very powerful. There's a few thoughts that came out of that. Non-Christians are spiritually empty vessels and insignificant to the spiritual realm. You mean nothing. A demon-possessed man is not scared of you if you don't have Jesus in you. He doesn't care you. And the text, remember what happened? One guy that's demon-possessed beat up seven guys and chased him out of the house, bleeding and naked, the scripture says. So you're nothing. Without Jesus, you're nothing in the spiritual realm. That's the first thing. Without Jesus, you are vulnerable to the spiritual realm. The spiritual realm shivers and shakes at the name of Jesus. And the key lesson that I took out of that is this. With Jesus, you overcome the world. Without Jesus, the demons overcome you. That was a key thought that I had in that lesson. With that, this is what we dealt with last time. We are still in Ephesus. And the question is... What happens next on the scene? There's a mighty, powerful Christian movement taking place in Ephesus and the whole of Asia. Powerful. What happens next? That's where we are. So, so verse 21, after all this happened, which I just explained, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So clearly, if you go look at the original, verse 21, he's saying it was, it, was, it was in Paul's spirit to go to Macedonia and Achaia. And if you want to see just where that is, that's Macedonia, that's Achaia, and then Rome is further up here. So Paul says, I want to move on from, uh, from Ephesus, and um, I want to go to Macedonia, and Achaia. That's where Corinth is, by the way, and Thessalonica is in Macedonia. And I want to go, obviously, see the Christians there, but I want to go further than that. I want to go to to Rome. He didn't go yet, because the last verse there says he stayed. But what he did is he sent two guys that he has been mentoring. That's Timothy and Erastus. And when I looked at that, I thought of just two points that I want to share with us. Why did Paul think about going into these places? Well, I think that he he had seen the powerful work that God is doing in Asia. He had trained up enough disciples. Everybody had heard, right? He hasn't been to Rome, so he wants to go to places that have not had this type of kingdom experience. He wants to spread the gospel, all right? So the point, the first point, is this: healthy Christianity. I, I, I was supposed to type it out. I'm sorry. It was a. It, it, I, I, I don't know, I forgot about it this afternoon. Healthy Christianity never abandons the imperial ambitions of Christ. And I need to remind us, because I I, I shared this with us in the very first lesson about Acts. The book of Acts is about the imperial takeover of the world. To remind you of what what I mean by that, in case the, the word imperial doesn't make sense. God is busy building a kingdom on earth that he wants, to take, he wants it to take over the world. We see it in the, book of, in the book of Daniel. I'm going to refer to the prophecy in a moment's time. This is part of God taking over. What we see in Acts chapter 19 is we see the kingdom of God taking over Asia. That's what we're seeing. God is building an empire. Okay, So the point here I'm trying to make is healthy Christianity is always asking the question, is there a place we still need to take over for God? Is there a place where the gospel still has to be preached? That's what Paul is saying. He says, Rome hasn't heard what these people have heard. And we need to take the message there. There's a a movement called Four Fields Disciple uh, Making, and they've got a slogan, three words. It says, um, no place left. No place left. Paul had this mindset. We need to have the same mindset as well. The second point I had was this. Disciple making directly benefits the imperial ambitions of Christ. Paul is mentoring two men, Timothy and Erastus. And he says, listen guys, I want to go to Rome now. I want to go to Macedonia, Macedonia and Achaia. But I, I, I want to stay a little bit longer, so I want you guys to go. What does it tell you about those two guys? Paul trusted them. He trusted them to do what he would do. So he was a good disciple maker. He taught them well, and he trusted them enough to say, okay, I can't go, you go on behalf of me. That is how powerful this is. Because now, look what happens. There's there's two ministry machines developing out of one. Paul can stay behind and continue building kingdom, and he can send these two guys to go build kingdom abroad. This is why it's so important that we teach and mentor people. This is so important, why Jesus specifically uses the word disciple-making in Matthew chapter 28. We've got to transfer what we know to somebody else, so they can do what we can do. The more we have of those, the quicker we'll impact the world. And you know I've been talking about this forever. So, things are going well with the gospel in Asia. Through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom... Is making incredible advances through miracle and preaching. But here's a question. What does the world think about this Christian movement? Imagine you're not a Christian and you're standing back and you see these Christians. Demons being driven out, people being healed. How does the world view that? You're a, you're a worshiper of Diana Artemis, this, this ancient Roman and Greek goddess. And you see these Christians, this is a weird new thing, new teachings, man, about some guy who wore rags and died on a cross somewhere. How did they view this Christian sort of movement? That's the question. What does the the businesses think? The non-believers think? How does the world of Asia view Christianity? Well, the answer is in verse 23, uh, 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance, About the way. Are we disturbed about this? We're disturbed with what we hear and what we we see is taking place here. The way refers to what? All of this whole Christian thing, the teaching, the teaching that Paul was carrying forward, the Christian doctrine. And so these people are like, yes, I don't know what these guys are teaching, man, but we're disturbed by it. My question is, how can the teachings about Christ disturb anyone? Why is it disturbing? People are being healed. Right? That shouldn't disturb you. That should be like, wow. Demons are being driven out. That, sh- that shouldn't disturb you. That should be like, wow. Ew. Light has come. Truth is here. God is here. People are happy. That's what Christianity does. True Christianity gives you joy, doesn't it? It's real. I think these people who moved away from idolatry and paganism, I think yeah, they were different people. So what could possibly be the problem. And Satan is clever, ladies and gentlemen. If he cannot stand up against truth, which is what happens here in Ephesus, he finds another way to keep you from God. Let's find out how he does that. Verse 24 to 29. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. So so this guy is looking at this whole thing. Yeah, this guy's preached to the whole of Asia. Everybody listens to that. He, He confuses, he leads them astray. He convinces people to believe different things. We need to sort out this guy. He doesn't like that at all. He says, Paul, that God made by human hands are no gods at all. (laughs) Do you you think there's anybody in our world today that would think that's ridiculous? (laughs) It's like, let's go worship a piece of stone, man. Let's go today. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Huh. This looks Huh. I was thinking about Doug when I read this. Doug, does this look like a union meeting? <laughs> it looked like a union meeting to me. Demetrius Demetrius, he doesn't go talk to Paul. No, he gets a mob together. Guys, how many times in the book of Acts have we seen mobs, riots? That's Satan's tool. Here we go once again. He goes and he gathers a crowd of like-minded people. You go get people that agree with you. Isn't that the best way to avoid the truth? Go get people that agree with you. Don't talk to people who disagree with you. Get people who already agree with you. Get them on your side. He doesn't ask if Paul is preaching the truth. His pursuit is not truth. His pursuit is something totally different. And what does he claim the issue is? Look carefully at his argument. I've highlighted what I believe the problem to be in red. That's what I think at the heart of it all, would you say that's the problem? Hey man, these guys aren't buying idols anymore. This guy was converted to Christ. Now he's not going to buy my idols anymore. Now we're going to lose money, man. That's what it's all about. But look at what he says. I've put it into, into four things over here. The message that the idols are not gods. That's the first problem that he has. Paul is saying idols are not gods at all. Secondly, the good name of the trade. We, we care about the trade. Yeah, right. You care about the money, buddy. Thirdly, the goddess will be discredited. Yeah, that's a pretty useless goddess, eh? If a human can discredit, I mean, can the god not defend herself? Fourthly, the goddess will be robbed of her majesty. Oh my goodness. You are admitting by the statements that you make, you've got a pretty pathetic goddess that you're worshiping. Because she can be robbed, she can be discredited. She's pretty useless. Maybe it's a good idea to go worship something else. The real issue, ladies and gentlemen, these are all excuses These are all arguments to gather a crowd. The real issue is money, in my estimation. Money. The Christian message is bad for business. The Christian message is bad for business. Paul and his message is breaking down our marketing campaign. How are we going to sell this stuff if people don't believe in it anymore? Do you see... What Satan does. Ladies and gentlemen, people fear losing money more than they desire to find God. They fear losing money more than they desire to find truth. Jesus said there's only two gods. I'm using my own words, paraphrasing. Do you know who they are? It's the true God. And what's the other one? Money. And he says you cannot serve both. So when Satan was scanning Ephesus, he's scanning Ephesus, he sees the stuff happening in Ephesus, he sees the Holy Spirit moving, and he says, I need to attack the Christian movement. Because that's what he does right through the book of Acts. The Spirit works powerfully, and then Satan rears his head, and he says, I need to kill somebody, or I need to make somebody sick, or or, or I need to bring deception into the church, as in Ananias and Sapphira. Situation. He always tries to come with an angle to stop the movement, and the spirit is working so powerfully in Ephesus. Satan says, "I need to do something, man." So, what do the people in Ephesus love? Who can I? How is it possible to get them in opposition to the Christian movement? Well, one of the best ways is money. It's the best way. So he tackles Demetrius. What was interesting for me here is that these guys do not have good arguments. The reasons they give is a cover-up for their love of money. Now, Artemis Diana, you know who she was? She was the protector of young children. She's a good goddess, actually. She's the goddess of childbirth. She was a patron of healing and disease, especially among women and children. And it was believed that she sent good health and also illness to women and children. It's interesting for me that Paul and the apostles, well, Paul and the disciples were performing these incredible miracles that healed people. It's interesting for me that they wouldn't look at the healings and then say, well, the goddess Artemis is with us. Because she was a goddess of healing. It's interesting that when you, when you decide you don't, well, well when, you, when you're under spiritual darkness and decide that you're not going to believe the truth, that you would believe anything except the truth. Very, very interesting. Now, there was a temple made to her. Do you know that this temple is one of the seven wonders of the world? It's this temple dedicated to her. So when Acts chapter 19 talks about this, it's a real deal. There's like, I think there's one pillar left or something that you can go touch today if you wanted to. Incredible thing. And as you'll see in in the text, uh, they believed that there was some form of meteorite or some thing that they believed fell from the sky um, that, that, connected, that was in this, in this temple. Some people say, no, it was something that was carved like an idol. And this guy, Demetrius, made copies of that thing and, and sold it to people. And, but it was made by a human. It didn't fall straight out of the sky from Jupiter. But it was hosted in this temple. So just to give you a little bit of background of who this this, uh, lady was or this, this goddess was. I don't think they've got any good arguments to discredit Christianity. I think it's because of the money. Now, be careful of money. Satan loves using money to pull you away from God. Quick question. And here's a quick way to test it. How do, you, how do you react when you lose money? I'll leave that to you. What's your first thought? Yes. Yeah, I went to go, we went to a, a, a church leadership conference, and, and I was with the, the preacher of, of the church in Durban, and we drive together in the car, and we, we stop, we go out the whole day, we come back to the parking lot. Welcome to South Africa. He's walking in the parking. It's the weirdest feeling to see. Yet, my car's gone. Now we're walking. Now I saw where he parked. And we are about 100 yards out. I see his car isn't there, man. Now I, I don't want to tell him this. We're walking. Now I'm, I'm preparing myself. I'm going to observe this guy. I just walk like this. Can't wait to see what his facial expression is going to be. Oh, my car's gone. No. He just like, he walks to the parking lot he's like with the keys like, Oh, my car's gone. They've stolen my car. All right. I was like, now that, you're a man. That's a man. And I say it to him still today. That's incredible. Because I probably would not have acted that way if my car was stolen like that. What a good example to me. How do you feel when you lose stuff? That will give you an indication of how attached you are to it. Now, of course, we're stewards of our money and the things that God gives us. But... Still, you've got to evaluate your emotions attached to it. Let's continue. Verse 28. When they heard this, now this is the crowd, this is the mob, this is Doug's uh, union meeting. When they heard this, they were furious. And they began shouting, so they were like agreeing with this guy. Yes, he swept them up, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. Now check what a mob does. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. It started with one guy in an argument that loves money. Got a bunch of buddies to agree with him. They started chanting, what's the next thing? The whole city is together. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The, The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. So Paul had some other guys doing ministry with him. Pretty cool. He had a network of people that could do the ministry. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Why do you think they would not let him? Because they'd probably kill him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. I wish. How can you imagine being in ministry with Paul? Yes, like this is real. Governmental agents are sending him messages. Hey, bro, there's a big riot there in in Ephesus. They don't have email and Facebook messages. They probably had to send a guy on a horse quickly. Paul, don't go into the theater. Those guys are going to kill you. This guy's got connections. Isn't isn't it incredible when you go through the book of Acts, how many times God protects Paul? And here he does it again. Because when you go to a riot, that riot was created by Satan. I believe, I'm, I'm confident to say this. And it's to draw out the apostle to kill him. The assembly was in confusion. That's interesting. I thought he had good reasons. I thought this was a legit discussion. No, it's not. It's confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. You can see it's a bunch of lunatics. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Oh, yeah, why are we here? Where's the beer? Let's uh, let's party. It's a party. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. He seems to be some Jewish leader. And they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. Okay, guys, let's calm down. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is our teammates of the Ephesians. Yo. How many times have we seen this in the book of Acts? Mobs and riots. Satan's modus operandi. Why does Satan do this? Because Satan doesn't want reasonable dialogue. Because when you sit down and talk with somebody, the truth will come out and the truth will survive and the truth will be discovered. But what we see here is an avoidance of truth. with riot and shout, and run around, and then the truth is assumed, when these people don't even know why they are there. Based on that one speech, most people believed Demetrius, but they had no clue what's actually going on. And the sad part is this, there were some people in that riot that was probably like innocent, probably good people, but they didn't bother to check the truth. And the same thing happens in our country, when the riots and the mobs go crazy in the cities. Some people are just pulled into this thing because the crowd is doing it. Everybody's doing it. They're pulled into it. Little do they know they're being used by the forces of darkness. And what does Paul want to do? Paul says, hey, let me go into the crowd. Let me go into the arena. Let me go into the theater. Let's go talk to the people and tell them what's really going on here. Let's go dialogue and explain what's going on. But these people are not in the mood to discuss anything. So people begged him not to go because they could read the crowd and they knew that the crowd would kill him. So um, they saw Paul as the guy who stole their money. Paul was taking their God from them. Let's read further. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, well, he got it right. Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis? and of her image which fell from heaven. You see, there it is. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. They had to get a political person in there, a Roman. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our gods. They're innocent. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen... Have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and they are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what had happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This, ladies and gentlemen, was a spiritual attack covered by a riot and some greediness for money that's all it is there was no legal reason for it you see how effective mobs and riots are now I want to close there's a few things I could say more but I I see we're running out of time I'm going to just close off with just some thoughts and open it up if you'd like to add anything or correct anything I try, to, I try to, this afternoon, I just went and, and lied down and tried to just see the story from a, from a distance, this whole last two chapters. And, and look, a, look at how this links up. And I saw this, this, this image again. Do you remember in Daniel, there was this, this, this statue, right, that represented the kingdoms, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then, and then there's this rock, remember this rock that, that fell from heaven and hit this the statue, and the statue crumbled. And then the text says that the rock mutated into a mountain that filled the whole earth. Some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy, like I hope, I hope that you know I'm really talking about something in the Bible. Where's I've got your support, yeah? Okay, we got your support, then they must believe me. That represents the kingdom of God. That's a prophecy through Daniel. That during the time of the Romans, there's going to come a kingdom. It's going to be small, look small and insignificant. It doesn't look like a statue, it's just a little rock. But it's going to throw down this whole system of kingdoms, and it's going to spread throughout the whole world. That's what the book of Acts is. The book of Acts is showing us how God's kingdom spreads throughout the whole world. And the beautiful thing about God's kingdom, it doesn't have a military. Like we think of it. You and me, we're the military. It doesn't have borders. It's not, it's not confined to physical things. Chains cannot stop its spread. Okay? That's what we see in, in Acts. And so I'm looking, I'm looking at at, at this situation in Ephesus through those eyes. Like, as the kingdom is spreading, it's spreading through Paul. And and Luke is recording for us as it's spreading. Okay, it starts off. It's birthed small like a small rock in in the heart in Ephesus and it spreads throughout the whole of Asia. That's what I'm seeing. So we see the, the systematic kingdom growth of God. Step by step, the kingdom of God is infiltrating, penetrating, and overtaking the pagan world. In Asia... The first military outpost that God took. If you look just at Ephesus, what's the first thing that God did in Ephesus? He took on the spiritual realm. He took on the demons. That's what we read. That's what happened with the seven sons of Sceva. He put them on notice. Jesus is here. Demons shudder. The power of demons. He took out the witches. Do you remember what happened? To the witches and the sorcerers. What did they do? Do you remember? They brought their parchments, their codes, their writings that was worth thousands upon thousands of dollars, we could say in today's day, and they burnt it. Jesus was conquering Ephesus, first of all, through, through destroying the sorcery and the witchcraft in Ephesus. Secondly, then what we see here in the text for tonight, the kingdom of God is attacking pagan idolatry. Idol worship, fake gods, False gods, fake and false theology. The kingdom is penetrating. The, the kingdom is, is killing the works of Satan as it spreads throughout Ephesus. And by the third century, we see, if we look at a, a, just a global scale, by the third century, the kingdom of God had taken over politics as well when the first Roman emperor becomes a Christian. The gospel is so powerful that the worshiping of Artemis Was probably cut in half within two years. Think about it. How many people do you think converted? Many, many, many. And all of those people stopped buying idols. You wanna see how the kingdom of God closes down a business? Yes, he's smashing them. No wonder they're upset. Jesus costs you. Jesus doesn't just cost us individually and personally, he costs whole religions. Fake religions, systems, countries, kingdoms. Jesus has cost a lot of people a lot of things. Because the kingdom of God is more powerful than anything. So when Christianity moved in, Artemis moved out the back door. Nobody worships her anymore today. She's done. The kingdom of God had killed her. Why? Because she was all man-made. She was a lie. We witness here the real-time effects that Christianity had on the ancient world. No society stays the same when Jesus comes in. You can't stay the same. No person stays the same when Jesus moves into his life. If we let Jesus into our lives and give him free reign, he will systematically dismantle and renew every aspect of our being. That doesn't conform to his will. But the process is painful. These guys in Ephesus couldn't handle this. It's too much on my business. It costs me too much. The same for us. It's too much. I can't change this. I can't change that. It's too much. I can't give up on pornography or being lazy or being weak or being a liar or being greedy. I can't give it. That's too much that Jesus requires of me. It was hard for the people of Ephesus to experience Christianity. Those who kicked against it, it was hard. Those who accepted it, their lives changed. These people lost their money. They lost their gods because of Christianity. Sometimes we resist, like this mob, the change that Jesus is trying to bring into our lives. We resist because we don't want to change. We believe it will cost too much. That's the first thing. I see this this movement of the kingdom pushing out. The paganism. But then there's a the second thing, which is more personal, that I found striking. There are two groups of people in Ephesus, and I alluded to them. There were those earlier in the chapter who gave up their money and their gods for Jesus. Those were the witches and the sorcerers. Remember, they gave up their, their, their parchments, their writings, their scrolls. That have come for hundreds of years. They burnt it up in a time where they were not Panasonic photocopiers. right? Those are valuable things. So you have one group of people that's willing to give up everything. To give up all of their money because they meet Jesus. And then you find another group that we dealt with tonight. Or oh, they fight for their idols. They refuse to give up. They refuse to give up their money and their gods for Jesus. And you'll always find those two people. You'll find people who say, "Well, I'm not gonna. I can't follow Jesus because it costs too much." And those who say, "What can I give up to follow you? I'll give up everything." When you truly find Jesus, nothing is too much to give up. But those who don't find Jesus, anything is too much to give up. Those who don't really get him. That's all that I have from my side. Anybody like to add something?